salvation, to be saved. I know these are loaded Christian words for many of us, and they certainly have been for me. There's a time in my life when I cringed every time that I heard them because of how they had been used, which in Scripture and in church is fairly often, right? Because the notion of salvation is, is central to the biblical story, the Old and the New Testament. There's no Judaism, no Christianity apart from it. In Scripture and in our tradition, this idea, salvation, is, is used to name the yearning, the desire, the hope, the, the purpose of the Christian life, which is to say that what we think salvation means what we think the hope, the purpose of the Christian life means, it matters. And so again, like last week with the words faith and belief, it is an eminent case in point of a rich and profound concept that has been so distorted by our modern understanding of it that it, as I mentioned earlier, it's almost now entirely unrecognizable from what it originally meant, how it was used in Scripture. And so that's where I want to begin, right here. I won't make you raise your hand this morning. I won't make you shout out answers. But I want you to answer for yourself, to think about this as I ask these questions. What does salvation mean? How have you heard it used? And what does it mean that Jesus is our Savior? What does it mean to be saved? Now, I'm guessing either an idea came to mind or your mind just went blank. That's all right if it went blank. But for many of us, I think our common association with this word and its derivatives, salvation means to go to heaven when we die. That's how it's oftentimes used in churches or by Christians. And how is Jesus our Savior? What does it mean to be saved? Well, for many of us, We associate it with being inherently sinful, and therefore we deserve to go to hell, but Jesus died for our sins, and so Jesus saves us from sin, and therefore from hell, if if we believe certain things about him, and we accept these ideas as truth, if we do that, then we get to go to heaven for eternity, And, and again, if not, then we go to the bad place. This was part of what we began exploring last week with how the words faith and belief have been so distorted from what they originally meant. Again, sadly, many of us are taught that this is the foundation of Christianity, that there is no Christianity. What makes it unique is that you believe in Jesus so you can go to heaven. There is no other way. That's the point. That's the goal. That's the purpose. What is our hope? to get into heaven when we die. Again, everything else is oriented around this. And yet again, like with those words, faith and belief, this entire notion of what salvation means, what it means to call Jesus our Savior, couldn't be much further from the truth as presented in Scripture. Of all the times that the words translated as Savior, saved, salvation, appear in the Bible, two-thirds are in the Old Testament. And in all of these uses, 
throughout the Bible, it's worth noting, salvation is almost never connected to an afterlife in any sense. That's just not how it's used. Let me say that again. Throughout the entire Bible, the concept of salvation is almost never connected to any sense of an afterlife, of heaven or of hell in any way. This is one thing that every seminary student learns in their Old Testament class. It's, it's drilled into them that the ancient Israelites did not even believe in an afterlife. Certainly not in the way that we think of an afterlife, of heaven and hell. The concept appears nowhere in Genesis, nowhere in the story of Exodus, nowhere in the words of the prophets or the prayers and praise and wisdom of the books of Psalms, of Proverbs, of Ecclesiastes, of Job. It's not in there. And yet, the word salvation is all over the Old Testament. Which again, was Jesus' scripture. This is what he was working with as his scriptures. As we read through these stories, we find that the primary way in which salvation is used, the primary meaning of it, is as liberation from bondage. You may remember the central story of salvation as liberation from bondage as the story of the Exodus, right? Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, the parting the Red Sea, the the leaving slavery. The Israelites were in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God delivers them from enslavement. And so in Exodus 14, we hear the author write, And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians. And a hymn in chapter 15 celebrates this by saying, The Lord is my strength and my might, and God has become my salvation. That is, God has become my liberation, that life force, that that power that works to free us from all that binds us. And we hear this sentiment as well in the mouths of of the great prophets when they recall the memory of the Exodus. So the prophet Hosea says, I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And you know no God for me, but me, for besides me, there is no Savior. And so Psalm 106 speaks of the God who is their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And so in this context, we see it's not about God saving them for heaven, for life after death, but from harm and for new life, life after the death-dealing forces of bondage in this life. God is their savior in that God had delivered them from political powerlessness, from economic exploitation, and from religious bondage because Pharaoh did not allow them to worship their God openly because Pharaoh knew that the God of these enslaved people had a vision for the world that was different than and opposed to his own view. And he knew that worshiping this God, this higher power, meant resisting his power. God saved the people from every form of indignity that resulted from their bondage. 
But that saving, liberating power didn't just end there. After saving the people from Egypt, they are given a new purpose. See, ultimately, God saves from in order to save us for. Saved them for a new way of being in community. Saved them to create and to model a new kind of society, one that doesn't reproduce the dynamics of Egypt, of powerlessness and exploitation. And actually, what we see in those ancient texts as the Israelites sought to form their own new society, we see them establish a set of laws with regular periods of the redistribution of wealth so as to prevent the emergence of a permanent under, permanently impoverished underclass, right? They, Israelites had been saved from Egypt, scholar and theologian Marcus Borg has written, and Egypt was not to be recreated in Israel. That's the primary way that salvation is, is discussed in the Old Testament. The second most important way salvation is spoken of in the Old Testament is as this hope for returning from exile. The yearning to return home after being displaced for generations by the ravages of war. This is the context for much of the great prophetic writings, including many of those passages that we hear lifted up from the prophet Isaiah around Christmas and at Advent. One of those passages is Isaiah 43. And I invite you to hear it again as a word of hope now on the, word, uh, on the lips of those who have been displaced by war, those who have been taken as captives and dropped in a foreign land they knew nothing about. To these people the prophet proclaims, Now thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fires, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my sight and honored. I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. We see similar parallels in the Psalms, where salvation refers to being rescued from peril. I am lowly and in pain, the psalmist writes. Let your salvation protect me. That is, may your saving grace, your mercy, your love and justice protect me in my vulnerability. And in another psalm, they write, save me from all of my pursuers, deliver me. And again, save all the oppressed of the earth. And again, save me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Turn, O Lord, save my life. Deliver me for the sake of your steadfast love. In both Isaiah and the Psalms, God is the Savior of Israel in that 
God will be with them in their uncertain and dangerous journeys. God will deliver them from all that dehumanizes and undignifies. God wants to deliver from injustice to justice, from fear to trust, from sickness to well-being, from violence to peace. This moment of death and despair will not define their existence, God is saying. They are defined by God's love for them, God's desire for their well-being. To be saved isn't about going to heaven when we die. It is to be brought into a new place in this life. As Cole Arthur Riley so beautifully put it, Earlier, This liberation isn't merely an end point that we attain, but an unending awakening. It is something we can both meet, we can choose, and we can walk away from within the same hour. Salvation is the journey of liberation that transforms us from the inside out so that we can be truly free. For freedom is, is a verb, it's not a noun, it's something that we choose, it's a place we live from, rather than something we simply possess. The father of black liberation theology, Dr. James Cohn, speaks to this aspect of salvation when he reflected once on the poor southern black community in which he was nurtured and raised. For these folks, he wrote, salvation means Salvation meant that they were not defined by what whites said about them or did to them, but rather by what Jesus said about the poor in his teachings and did for them on the cross. They really believed, he wrote, that Jesus' death expressed God's solidarity with the little ones of this world. This faith not only gave blacks an identity that, that whites could not take away, it also empowered them to resist any indignity with all the power that they had. God was not merely a spiritual savior who, by believing certain theological and philosophical propositions about him, we get into heaven in the afterlife. For them, he writes, to call God their savior was to see God as the liberator in history. Through the stories of salvation in scripture, of the exodus, of the return from exile, in the Psalms, in Jesus' unwarranted killing, through these stories they told their own story, and they claimed their true destiny, which is that they were worthy of freedom in every form. And isn't this deep down what we all yearn for? for a fuller connection to what is, for liberation from all that keeps us in bondage, physically, socially, economically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? Do we not yearn for the capacity to see beneath the surface and the superficial, the things that we are, are taught to pay attention to that will define us, that will save us, whether it's our power or prestige, our position in society, our beauty, what we accomplish, these things that we are told matter but really don't? 
Isn't our deepest yearning not for more and more things, but for more wholeness? For the healing of wounds? For the repairing of broken relationships? For the courage to trust and love one another even when the going gets rough? Maybe this is heaven, Riley writes. And so I want to end this morning with the story of just that, of what I think is an image of heaven on earth in our own moment, salvation in our own world, here and now. Reverend Chip Seadale is the pastor, the senior pastor of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church on Martha's Vineyard. He was away at a conference recently when he learned that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had flown two planes of around 50 undocumented migrants, people seeking asylum from the Texas border to the Martha's Vineyard Airport in Massachusetts. These men and women and children had no idea where they even were when they arrived. They, they know, uh, and no one knew that they were coming. I want you to imagine for a moment the terror, the fear after an already harrowing journey of escaping violence and destitution just to arrive at the southern border, only to then become pawns in a grotesque political stunt. Someone at the airport communicated directions for them to walk to the Island Community Services Building. It's a program that Reverend Chip and his congregation had helped to found. Janet, a counselor at the ICS, was just ending her day, about to leave when this group, she saw this group walking toward her and seeking food and housing. She immediately called Pastor Chip and said, what can we do? What, what do we do? And so began an incredible story of service and generosity and community action, of salvation in action. Pastor Chip began making calls to parishioners and other local congregations. And because of the work that they'd done together over the years, they knew each other and had enough sense of trust and shared mission that that made collaboration seamless. They went right to it. Within three hours of Pastor Chip getting that phone call, these migrants were settled and being cared for. Once the call went out for volunteers, the food ministry leaders showed up with food. The shelter volunteers showed up to set out cots. Translators showed up to help with communication. Lawyers and doctors showed up to offer services. Dentists Police, fire workers, and so many others from the community all showed up, dropped what they were doing, showed up, and jumped in to help. Again, the ability to respond in the moment of crisis was the fruit of many years of preparation, of working together. For instance, the church had also helped to run the overnight winter shelter program on the island, through which 200 people had been trained in how to provide services to vulnerable people in need. And so when people learned of these migrants needing help, they knew how to respond faithfully and effectively. It's a muscle they had been working and building up over the years. It was an amazing thing to see, Pastor Chip said. 
I mean, our call as Christians is to take care of the stranger. We simply said yes. It's not about taking sides in a dysfunctional political drama or investing in divisions and scapegoating. Rather, as Pastor Chip says, good theology wins. If salvation names our deepest yearning, our hope, the goal, the purpose of our faiths, of our faith, of our lives, is this not it? Is not our deepest yearning transforming a situation of cruelty and terror and uncertainty into one of extravagant love and generous mercy and beauty? Is it not being delivered from all that dehumanizes and disfigures and diminishes life so as to know the flourishing for which we were created? Are not all of us in need of such salvation? May the power of life save us all indeed. Amen.